Hi there, this is Justina, and you're listening to the Exploding Head Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Justina, and welcome to the Exploding Head Podcast. When I was living in Thailand, I would be surprised by how loose the law would seem in some really insignificant respects, like if you were driving a motorbike, no helmet, literally a bottle of wine in the basket, you'd probably be fine. Was I doing that myself? No, because I don't drive. So I would be sitting on the back seat. Not a great idea. I was very young. Don't recommend it. But the point is that, yes, you could do that. So I think in any country, what it seems on the surface is one thing, obviously, but what the legal system is actually can be very different. Case in point, the same time when I was living in Thailand, I saw cases where people were being extradited, I'm not sure if successfully, sadly, probably yes, for having insulted the royal family, for having insulted the king, for having committed a crime that is actually defined in the constitution itself. A law that is called Les Majestés, and I am definitely mispronouncing it because it's French. So it's basically a law saying that you cannot be insulting the royal family. That was in Thailand 10 years ago. Now I'm living in Jordan, which is also a monarchy, and I've recorded one episode on it already, mentioning media freedom a little bit. And it also has very strict laws. Just this week, a lady apparently was sentenced for one year in prison for having said that her father was better than the king. I'm quoting here. This is a direct quote. So media freedom, quite interesting, huh? Let's talk about it today. But let's go beyond the obvious. Let's go beyond the censorship laws, which are fascinating in the worst case possible. Let's also talk about something that's sometimes difficult to notice if you don't do your own research. That is media ownership and what it does to the media landscape. So it's quite likely that you have heard of different kind of rankings, ratings of countries in terms of how free their media is. One great source would be Reporters Without Borders and their annual reports, and obviously any other types of reports that they do. So we can take a look at any country and see how it's doing right now, see if it has moved up or down compared to last year, and any interesting indicators you might find about it. So obviously that's one big international organization, there are plenty of local ones as well. So we can take a look at the legal landscape, media restrictions, and protections. But is there anything else that we could be looking into? Is there anything that might not be considered a type of censorship, but something that significantly affects what we're seeing in the news? What we're seeing, how we're seeing it, and very, very importantly, what we're not seeing at all? The answer is yes. Imagine if the answer had been no, how weird my question would have been. But so yes, the answer is yes. Let's see what that is exactly and why it's important. So today I want to talk about something that could be called media pluralism or media plurality. I understand that the word plurality is not that easy to pronounce really, so I'll see how I'll be doing here. I think more cuts will be needed, but hey, a small price to pay. So media plurality. And when we talk about media plurality, what comes to mind? Well, it could be a couple of things, but two categories, definitely. But one is external plurality, and the second one, you might guess, is internal plurality. And different types or different meanings of that have been distinguished. So one, you can think of these categories as external plurality, 
is the number of media outlets, like how many radio stations do we have, how many TV channels, different media companies, right? So what's the totality of what we're actually seeing in the news, what we're seeing in the media? And then internal plurality could mean diversity of voices, diversity of opinion, and even, which is very much related to that, who is in the media itself? Do we have groups that are diverse? Do we have different genders? Do we have different walks of life, blah, 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 represented? Because externally, you might think that, well, we do have a lot of everything. Look, look at these companies, look at these TV channels, once again. But internally, it might not be that diverse. And the kind of distinction that I want to talk about today is very similar. External is still external. But then when we talk about internal plurality, I like to talk about media ownership. Or rather, we can say ownership structures or even ownership distribution, ownership consolidation. Like how consolidated is the media when we dig a bit more deeply. And so when we look a bit more deeply, what the ownership landscape tells us is a lot. And one question you might have, okay, how do I even check that? Where do I find that information? And for that, I will link to a couple of good sources. One, interestingly, I love the acronym MOM, M-O-M. It stands for Media Ownership Monitor, and it's an initiative by, once again, Reporters Without Borders. It doesn't cover all the countries, but it covers quite a lot of them. So I will link that to the article surrounding my podcast, as always. But so when we look at that media ownership landscape, what we find can be, oh my God, truly fascinating. <laughs> the question, who are the major players? I think that's a good question to ask. And the answer, depending on the country and on your knowledge of that media landscape, might surprise you. So, for example, and this is an extreme example, right? The U.S. When you look at all the U.S. media, like privately owned media, you know, so many channels, so many stations. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it's a big country. Of course, we're going to find a lot of everything. And then I will link to a graph, one of the graphs that you might have seen somewhere, which shows what happens if you go upstream, so to speak. So if you look at smaller companies, who owns those smaller companies, who then owns that bigger company. And if you trace it back, which is not that difficult to trace, that's not classified information anywhere, you find in the end just several major companies owned by several families. It's insane. So if you look at a company that you consider quite big, let's say, you know, Fox, for example, right? It's the companies that produce and distribute movies. That's a big industry. These are big companies. You can still go upstream. You can still find a bigger company underneath, so to speak. So it's insane and way more impactful to see that visually. So I'm going to link to that so you can check that out for yourselves. So you might think, okay, US, maybe an extreme case. Okay, let's take a look at another rich and, you know, free in terms of its, you know, censorship laws, civil liberties in general country, for example, the UK. You might think that maybe the situation is better there. Not too much, or maybe not even at all. Same thing, literally several families, all the companies that they own. I will link to that as well. So I know that I'm not going to cover every country from which my audience is. And I know these are some countries, and I'm very happy about that. But the resources that I'm sharing it will cover most of them, actually. So check it out. 
It's just a couple of clicks away. So obviously media plurality, that concept, it's not sufficient alone to only look at that when we try to answer the question, how free is really media in your country? There are so many good questions to ask and so many approaches to take. But this one, media ownership, what it does and what its role is in deciding what to talk about and what not to talk about, it's huge. It's a massive role to play. So that's why it's a good question. And this question is not really a hypothetical one. We know some of the answers to it. For example, if the media company, seemingly small but actually owned by a bigger one, is owned by a large company that has invested a lot into fossil fuels, into that industry, what do you think is more likely that they will be talking about this new groundbreaking report on climate change and how everything is accelerating because of humans? What's more likely that it will be talked about or that it won't be really focused on? If a large company has been investing into the arms industry, how wars are reported on? Do you think that might have an influence? Of course. And these are not your conspiracy theories. I think I, I understand why people are into conspiracy theories by default. These are interesting narratives. They simplify the world saying, no, 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 everything happens for this one reason. Let me tell you which reason that is. And these are interesting narratives. Yes, yes, yes. But you don't need, you don't even need to look for conspiracy theories. Just look into politics, look into media, look into the actual ties that we can confirm and see what that does. And so why it's important. Well, research shows that issues, if you talk about them in the media, and it almost doesn't matter, interestingly, in which light you portray them, but the very fact itself that you talk about it, you plant some seeds into people's minds and people start thinking about those issues. One way or another, it will be in their heads. Climate change, wars. You might remember one of my previous episodes on Palestine and on the media silence surrounding the whole issue. I gave an example of the Iraq war, and it's a painful example in so many ways, mostly because of the actual human toll that it took. Obviously, that's, that's the number one reason why it's important, and how the mainstream media in the U.S., basically no one was questioning the statements coming from government officials, the media was beating the drums of war, the public opinion was formed, a war started. What immense power is this? And it's not about media censorship. It's not about media laws per se. I guess you could have antitrust laws breaking up big media companies. So law is still important here. But so even in countries that are free, what is that plurality we're seeing in terms of opinion? What is that plurality that we're seeing in terms of how we report on what the government is saying? Is there much of it or not too much really? I want to leave you with a quote and a summary, really, by Jeremy Scahill, who is an investigative journalist. He's been around for some time, uh, reported on various conflicts. You might have seen his documentary, Dirty Wars, on drone warfare. And he's also one of the co-authors of The Intercept, an amazing independent media outlet. Check it out. I will link it in my article, of course. So Jeremy Scahill, someone whose work I admire a lot, in one of his speeches, and I have to say, I was not able to remember which speech exactly it was. There is a lot. So nice to say that there's so many interviews, so many speeches by Jeremy that you can find and listen to. And I would say, go ahead. Oh my goodness, yes. But in one of them, he said something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. 
but I think you'll get the idea. The mainstream media is not friends with corporate America. The mainstream media is not enemies of corporate America. The mainstream media is corporate America. And I know my podcast can be very US-centered for reasons that make sense to me, but maybe not to all of you. But I think this quote, it's a great reminder and it's a great warning. Something that I think is so good to remember. So we can do our research, so we can check our sources, and we can be maybe just a little bit more informed. Wow. I guess we went from riding a motorbike without a helmet in Thailand to the Iraq war. That was a bit of a jump. That all happened within one episode. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope to see you next week. Hey, remember when I told you that it's quite difficult to pronounce plurality, especially together with external? I'd say you try it, and these were my results. External plurality. External plurality. External plurality. Oh my god. <laughs>